another edition of Turn Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damian Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved with punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, we're continuing Awesome Siblings Week, Super Siblings Week, with the uh, other amazing sibling in the Fowler family. There's a, there's a few other ones as well, but Kembra Fowler is on the show today. Kembra Fowler, you may know from the voluptuous horror of Karen Black. You may know for some of her incredible performance artwork. You may know for some of her incredible artwork in general and approach to art and philosophies to art and all sorts of, all sorts of stuff. She is an icon uh, in the art world and in the music world and in the performance world and just New York in general, like a New York icon. More on that in one second, but this is a good one. First, if you would like to get in touch with me, head over to the email address turned out of punk podcast at gmail.com. That is run by my brother and show producer and my awesome sibling, Tristan Abraham. Tristan, thank you for all the hard work that you do for the show. I really do appreciate it, buddy. Um, and he will get the message to me. You can also find me on Twitter or Instagram at left for Damien. If you want to support the show, the best way to support the show is by telling all your friends about it. You can also head over to turned out a punk, po- uh, no, just turned out a punk.com and grabbing a t-shirt and uh, thank you to everyone has, that has done that. Uh, you can also head over to patreon.com slash turnoutapunk. And thank you, thank you to everyone that does do that and support the show that way. Or, you know, rate it and subscribe to it on your platform that you listen to it on. Or, you know, just just listening and supporting this thing. So thank you to everyone that does do that. Uh, and uh, speaking of uh, support, I play in a band called Fucked Up. Um, we will be going on tour in the UK very soon. Um, I think a week after this is dropping. <laughs> I, I, I should know this. Uh, we will also be going on some uh, East Coast states in the United States and other places in Europe throughout the summer. You can find out more information on this and a bunch of records we have that are coming out on uh, Jade Tree. Not Jade. <laughs> oh my God, that's a blast from the past. <laughs> coming out on Matador Records. Coming out on Get Better Records and coming out on Tank Crime Records. You can find out more information over at fuckedup.cc about all the stuff with Fucked Up. And uh, that is that. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, Kembra Fowler is here. As I said off the top, she is a hugely, hugely influential artist on a lot of people, myself included. Uh, To me, She's someone who has always, uh, you know, in terms of the music stuff in Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black and and uh, just in terms of performance as well, you know, performance art stuff, she's someone who's always pushed the boundaries of extreme performance for me. Like someone who has always, uh, you know, uh, just transgressed, you know, the the boundaries of, of performance and... Someone who I always felt, you know, I'd taken things to a place where I felt it was safe to kind of take things to an extreme place myself. Nowhere near as extreme as where Kemba takes it. But at the same time, it it kind of like opened my eyes to the parameters of performance and that there are places you can go with this thing that are, you know, very extreme. Look up some of the stuff she's done. There's, there's you know, unfortunately very little in terms of stuff that's been reissued. We talk about this in, in the show. But it, hopefully at some point this stuff all starts coming out again. There are some things that you can find online and some performances. And I'm sure if you've got a great video store, one of the surviving great video stores near you, maybe you can find some old video footage um, and DVDs. I know some of the stuff was reissued in the 90s. But, 
yeah, an incredible artist. So the opportunity to get down to sit down and talk to her is was huge for me. But as you kind of learned last week in the Adam episode, the fact that these two are siblings is is kind of mind blowing. You know, like here are two people from very different, in my eyes, parts of the punk rock world that are related to each other. And I should have known based on the last name. I should have known, but I didn't really figure it out till the Jawbreaker documentary came out. And uh, I, there's still some people I talked to this week that didn't know. So there you go. Hopefully, if you knew, you're excited. But if you didn't know, man, I hope your mind's a little bit blown by this one. All right. I'm not going to ramble on any more. Uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy Kembra Fowler on Turned Out a Punk. Hi, Damien. It's Kembra. Thank you for inviting me today. Well, as I was kind of telling you in the last few conversations we've had, um, you're a massive influence on me as a performer and as an artist and a musician and it was only through talking to Adam that I found out about your connection to the LA punk scene and, you know, really kind of like realized how much of a role you played in shaping Jawbreaker too. So uh, there's a lot for me to talk to you about. And so thank you for coming here. Um, you know, I only wish I would have um, been somewhat responsible for shaping Jawbreaker. I think the nice part about growing up in the first wave of Los Angeles punk, um, the ethics and the things that I learned from the older artists was always more about sharing our process and sharing our music and not really having a hierarchy of, um, of entertainers versus punk versus people that drew comics versus um, there, there, it was always very important to me. And it still is not to have a hierarchy of, of influence and imagery. If one, if we are able to meet one another while we're still in this body, that to me is the most glamorous vacation, the most wonderful thing that human beings can actually do. So Jawbreaker shaped themselves, as you know. I, I'm the older sister, but I've learned so much from, from Blake Schwarzenbach, from Adam Fowler, from Chris Bauermeister, I've learned so much from their lyrics, from the way they write their albums, from the way Adam plays drums, same Chris's bass. They're there. I, I definitely am a fan, besides being the older sister of Adam Fowler. But so I, you know, Adam Fowler, we, we definitely just were lucky enough that they had the patience to work with my band, with Samoa and I. And when when they were that was when they were in their early twenties and they were in um, in New York City, um, we got to do some really early work with them. And um, when I was in high when they were in high school, still I would always go home. I'd always go home about three times a year, three or four times a year, Damien. I don't know if you do that as well, but some people um, when they leave home leave home and never turn back around, but. When I left home at age whatever it was, um, I always went home to Los Angeles because I love the Los Angeles music. I love Jawbreaker. I love the music scene decade after decade after decade. So um, it's I always went home a lot, Damien. I don't know if that makes sense. So I feel like I got the best of both worlds, really. Yeah, it's only in 
you know, recent readings and stuff like, you know, after interviewing Adam and stuff and, and seeing the Jawbreaker documentary that I realized you're, cause you're such a New York icon, you know, like you're so, I just associate you so much with New York and New York art and things like that. But then to kind of hear how important California was and the fact that you were a surfer and all this sort of stuff and shaping, you know, the person beyond this sort of like image, it's just, uh, yeah, it's very fascinating to me, like hearing about all that kind of connection. I don't think, I wonder if people could say this about anywhere you're born, but I don't think um, where you're born ever leaves you, be it Boston, be it someplace in Canada, be it Hawaii, be it Europe. I just think we have those um, ties to where we're born. And California was always very inspirational to me in a a spiritual way. Um, I would always meditate thinking about all of the beach cities at night. I would meditate reciting um, the beach cities beginning with Zuma Beach. I'd go Zuma, Malibu, Topanga, Santa Monica, Torrance, and, and all down to Rosarita Beach. I would just say the names of those beach cities. And I actually, the first class that I taught at Columbia University, um, was an art and music class and I did it two years right before COVID and the the name of the class was called the Queen's Necklace which is actually when you're above the Santa Monica Bay the Queen's Necklace comes from it's a geographical um uh uh geographical uh location like if you're flying above Palos Verdes, um, Torrance, um, the South Bay, Santa Monica, Malibu, the shape of those beach cities is called the Queen's Necklace. And that was the title of my course at, um, at Columbia. And the students really understood the course title, but the Columbia professors said, could you please change the title of your course? That's a little too... Um, that's a little too flowery, but the students always loved the idea of the queen's necklace. I gave them the queen's necklace as a title because I encouraged them to have uh, a meditative process when they were feeling agitated, when they couldn't sleep at night, when they wanted to kind of mellow out. I said, what is your meditative process students in my class? So we all, we all made up a meditative process in the class and I shared mine with them, which is, it, it may sound a, a little bit like quackery, but um, I, don't, I don't do any spiritual practice at all, aside from really meditating on the joyful places um, that I, I, where I grew up, the joyful memories that I had. And I had some, had some very good memories. And um, also just quickly, not to ramble on too much, that practice came from a book that Blake Schwarzenbach gave me when I was um, in my um, 20s, which is Letters to a Young Poet by Rainer Maria Rilke. And that book of poetry um, encourages artists to, if you're, if you're feeling confused about the content of what you're writing poetry or writing about, Rainer Maria Rilke always said, you have a vast reservoir in your mind uh, of your childhood practices. And um, that's where the queen's necklace came from. So 
the book that inspired all of that actually was given to me by Blake Schwarzenbach. Well, you know, and I'm, I kind of came to meditation throughout the pandemic too. Like I was someone who didn't believe in it just because I had no relationship to a tradition with it. And then coming to it, like I find it almost like physical exercise where it's, it's giving your brain a chance to kind of work out. And I find for me, it's really helped my anxiety. It's really helped all sorts of things. And if I can remember and remind myself to do it, it, I can feel the benefits and I'm coming from no spiritual tradition at all in that way. Yeah, me as well. And music. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience during COVID. Have you been going to band practice in person? We only started having in-person band practice, but my band's got a lot of baggage, so I don't think we get the full kind of release experience. We got a lot of uh, a lot of history with each other that sort of just sits there in the room when we're together. When when I went back to band practice, Damien, during the last three years, I found that I would get so overstimulated by the loudness in band practice um, when I would go home, especially if we wrote a new song or if we just we're so happy to see one another. It, it, it just was like an incredible, um, it was, it was, it's very different during COVID because we weren't, we couldn't see each other that often. We could, I couldn't rehearse twice a week. Like I, I like to rehearse twice a week with my band. And I also like to go alone to singing practice in the studio. And uh, in New York city, I go to Rivington Rehearsal Studio, and they were open the whole time, Damien, which was amazing because many places closed. And um, so I was able to go to Rivington Rehearsal Studio, and and the noise, the sound was really different in my ears. And some of us were saying that that was because of our vaccinations that we had. Like, I think our RNA got really... Um, uh, reconfigured um, and it was a very positive experience for me I didn't have a negative experience with vaccinating um, I had to vaccinate because of my work I wasn't allowed to go to my job unless I vaccinated and um, I don't stay inside of this apartment to work. Yeah. I can't yeah. stay in here to work and I don't work on the computer full time so I would leave the house and that was really um, made my family very nervous that I had to leave the house the last three years. Nothing bad happened. Um, it was New York as we knew it, but you know, it, it definitely, I had people asking me the first year of COVID if I would write and write a, write a story about how New York is reverting back to the seventies, the grimy New York, like we used to know and love. And I, I said, I'm not writing about that. I'm not writing about anything like that. Why don't you come over yourself and come here and get on the subway and go to the grocery store? I'm not selling. I'm not monetizing this uh, pandemic. I'm not monetizing this completely difficult period of time that we're having. I can't analyze it. I thought it would be rude. And I stayed here and I'm glad I stayed here. And, um, it's been an interesting two and a half years. I mean, I'm sure it's been interesting for you as well in Canada, but I found back to the meditation um, practice um, when I do it, um, it's, it's uh, definitely slows down um, the brain. It slows do you down the first time you ever came across 
sorry. Go ahead. Well, the first time you ever came across, sorry. Came across. The first time you ever came across punk at all? Yeah, it was um, going to um, clubs in Los Angeles when I was in high school. Um, I was in 10th and 11th grade um, and 12th grade. This was 78 and 79. And there was a woman called Claire Kmart, E. Claire Kmart. And she went to Santa Monica High School. And she, oh, hold on a minute. Let me put in. She, no problem. She was friends with Geza X. And um, Geza X, who worked at Slash Magazine. And I got to find out all the shows. That, ha that were happening around Hollywood and Santa Monica were all found out about by way of Slash Magazine and by way of posters. So um, we would see posters around town, mostly in Hollywood, because um, punk hadn't come to the beach cities all that much. Um, X was in Venice, so I got to see all of my first X concerts in Venice. Those were brilliant. and. Um, I guess it must have been seeing the Mau Mau's and um, the weirdos, um, seeing um, those at, at clubs at, on Pico Boulevard. We would go to Club 88 on Pico. And then there was um, Al's Bar downtown. And there was the place called the Atomic Cafe downtown. So um, I, was, I was in high school, Damien, and the first time I got a Exposed to punk music, uh, it was um, you know the it was I felt like it was maybe like the Italian Renaissance, which was the age of enlightenment where the lights got turned on. I just felt like wow, the lights were just turned on. <laughs> I felt like um, I really was exposed to a, a medium and a kind of music and artwork that was was life changing in the most positive way. I'm fascinated by when it hits out in Los Angeles, kind of Southern California, because just from talking to people that were there when it first happens, it seems like it's the first time kind of kids were free again. Like youth culture was so villainized and demonized in the wake of Charles Manson that it takes, you know, sort of like five or six years before you have that Rodney's English disco glam scene that eventually begats this whole uh, punk like you're saying this punk renaissance this youth culture renaissance that happens that not only brings in music but brings in art brings in performance brings in all these different things because kids are finally free to be kids again yeah i definitely think that there was an incredible awakening with all of that i i didn't really get exposed to um kim fowley and the runaways until the 90s. I met Kim Fowley in the 90s when he was here, um, you know, doing some A&R research. And he was a fan of the Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black, which is the rock band I made with the theatrical punk rock band that I made with Samoa Moriki. And um, it was in the early 90s and Kim Fowley was in town and he was it was a great time to meet Kim Fowley. And he had, um, you know, told us all of his runaway stories. And um, but I didn't ever interface with um, with that group of people um, growing up by the beach. Um, I was very, um, very much I was very 
only about five years younger than all those people. But I've spoken about this before. It just felt like a vast gap of age, really. Mm. Um, so, um, and, um, you know, I didn't participate in adult sexuality when I was a teenager either. And Kim Valley and all those other folks, they were doing, they're, they're hitting it pretty hard and heavy. They're, they're doing stuff that was a bit too grown up for me. Yeah, well, the stuff you hear about, like, that's, I guess, the the other side of the sword is the fact that you've got, like, a lot of young kids hanging out with a lot of, in some cases, predatory adults. And it, you know, well, the Ronnie English Disco, like, everyone who talks about it talks about how it was, you know, an amazing place for music, but not a great place to be a young girl, especially. A young girl or a young boy. And um, that didn't always happen, Damien, so I don't want to paint a picture that it was, that what that was, um, that's just saying it was all like that. In in fact, just learning about my own sexuality was very much encouraged for me to uh, be myself and um, feel beautiful and not have to worry about if I was queer, if I was not queer, if I was a man or a woman, if I was tall or short, if I was fat or skinny, uh, if what race I was. I felt one of the best parts of that scene was. Um, how um you know i i in fact felt very very hated before i discovered um punk rock music i felt always like they no matter who i met everyone would always say to me if you only dye your hair blonder and lose 20 pounds you'd be some some like someone we could speak to and they people really spoke to you like that growing up in Southern California. And that's hate speech, that's hateful. And um, it made me feel absolutely um, uh, painfully uh, um, vilified as a preteen and as a teenager. And I did not get that kind of disrespect in the punk world. I did not get that disrespect. Um, so, Whatever grown up or, or adult sexual things people were doing, um, that just wasn't my scene at the time. I was busy plotting my move to New York when I was a teenager. And I was, I was studying a lot. And I just didn't have time. It wasn't my time to grow up. You know, I, I felt like I grew up when I got to New York. It also, Keith Morris, when he was on the show, talked about how, you know, how under... Uh, discussed or how undervalued it is growing up in the beach communities versus growing up in other parts of sort of Los Angeles, because the beach communities, you're an outdoor kid and the physicality of it is, is part of your lifestyle. Like he, he used it when he was talking about the violence that would normally, which then gets associated with that scene as it starts moving towards the punk scene in, in LA or in Hollywood, I should say. Um, and it's, it's something that I think you know, I've heard you talk about it too. Like growing up in these beach communities, you're surfing, you're outdoors. Like it's a lot, it's sort of a different life experience than people have in other places. I, I think children, um, when they're able to, to, to use their imaginations in the spirit of availabilism, which is making the best use of what's available. I think they're fine. They, everyone finds their own imagination and ways to make their life beautiful and make their childhood beautiful. If you're growing up in Riverside, if you're growing up anywhere, 
you know, we toured every state in the United States when, when with the voluptuous horror of Karen Black. So I got to visit every state in the, the country. And so I got to see a lot of different lifestyles. So I wouldn't say I wouldn't say growing up by the beach was the only beautiful way to grow up or it, it the but the beach, it just was what I experienced. It was my it was my experience. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, it's fun to share that experience with other folks. That's one of the best things about having that is um, getting people acclimated to the ocean and um, bringing friends to the ocean. So that's one of the nice things that we can do is share those places with others. And you grew up surfing, um, right? Well, my father, Fred Fowler, was a surfer, and he um, he um, sort of stopped surfing, I'd say, in the 80s. Um, my real dad, um, Fred Fowler, made the movie Slippery When Wet with Bruce Brown, the filmmaker that made Endless Summer. And my father, Fred Fowler, really was not into commercialized surfing um, and sponsored surfing. And so he left and went to the um, kind of backside of Los Angeles and lives near Pear Blossom Highway. Um, like if you're at the beach and you look at the mountains, when you look at the snow, that's where my father lives. Oh. Um, so my father would take me surfing every morning with him and I would watch him surf. Um, and he also took me to Hollywood Racetrack um, to watch the horses, too. Um, so after my father left us, um, my dad, Larry Ball, um, came to live with us and he loved the ocean very, very much. He was a, it was a child from Detroit, Michigan. So moving to Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach was heavenly to him. And so my dad, Larry Ball, we were always on the ocean and always at the beach and he was the person that brought me to Hawaii for the first time and we lived in Maui we would go back to Maui constantly um my dad Fred Fowler was one of the first surfers um uh in Oahu um he was one of the first big wave surfers there and he surfed there when he was in high school when he was 16 17 he ran away to Hawaii to surf the big waves and that was in the 50s 60s so my dad larry ball and i were always talking about fred fowler saying can you believe freddie fowler surfed here he ran away from home so that was a a story we would tell over and over and over and over to one another because it was such an incredible thing that fred fowler did coming to hawaii in the late 50s and surfing the big waves um it just hadn't happened yet. It had, you know, sponsored surfing hadn't happened. Um, uh, Velcro on your surf trunks hadn't even happened. So he was a, Fred Fowler was a really early surfer. And, and I, I've got such incredible photos of him. Adam, my brother, Adam Fowler and I both have incredible photos of Fred Fowler and my family, be it with Larry Ball, my second dad my stepdad which i never call him my stepdad with larry ball um or or with my brothers um abby ball and adam fowler we always talk about the the, the stories around surf and around the water and um 
Abby Ball, my brother, is more of a surfer now. He lives in Topanga. Um, Adam Fowler is surfing with his daughter's war um, with his kids. Me growing up as a surf kid, um, they would mostly say to me when I was little, why are you in the water so much? Please put a top on. You're a female and you're going to be very hot when you grow up. And I'd say, what do you mean? Like an egg that's being cooked? Um, you know, so I had constantly surfers kind of teasing me when I was a little girl and hopefully dads with daughters and hopefully in the generation in the twenties and the tens and the aughts and in the nineties, I think hopefully that language and the way we engage with females and young or even, even less effeminate, even more effeminate men, you know, cause a lot of men say surfing's too macho for me, you know, yeah, they get teased yeah. or surf doesn't have enough interracial people it's not where's all my where's all the other races of people this is not right you know mm-hmm. like we all have to get in the water we you know and it's a lovely thing for any kid any adults participate in um something i i um uh, i really um i'm glad i was exposed to but no i'm not a good surfer i i surfed as much as i could i often would uh, smash my uh, nose and get I got a lot of bloody noses I got a lot of head injuries I got a lot of um, scrapes and people don't talk about that too much there was a woman called Stephanie Gilmore that we did a Karen Black concert for and she was when we met her she was the world champion female surfer of the world Stephanie Gilmore and I encourage anyone to to check her out. And there's a nice film about Stephanie. She loved music. She still loves it. And she is probably about in her late 20s now. But my band got to grow up to do, to meet. I've met a lot of people that are surfers from mm-hmm. being in this band. Well, it's it, it, it really does feel like it's, it's the birth of like a, a different stream of American youth culture. When, you know, when your you know endless summer kind of era like you have these kids kind of like building their own sport and ultimately like it leads to dogtown which leads to you know the skateboarding thing which leads to the punk thing like it really is traced back and and it's like you're saying freddie fowler and people that rejected the commercialism of it that really informs later on punk rock kids that are rejecting commercialism of entertainment and music like it is this idea of creating your own culture for its own purpose that's that's something as everyone's growing up that's that's a polemic and that's a kind of um decision and compromise that we all have to make as we're growing up and learning how to take care of one another and take care of our families and our friends Mm. you know how involved we want to be with the, the commercial world you know um i mean look what happened to to adam fowler and blake and chris in the nineties after they got signed to Geffen. I mean, that there was so much heat. That was such a, there, that situation was just lit hot. It was psychologically, I, I am sure. And I, and I haven't talked to Blake and Adam or Chris about this in a long time, but I can only imagine how intense that was for those young artists to go through, you know, and young artists are still going through that today. My, um my um 
Yes, Archie. A lot of young kids that are getting signed to labels and stuff now. Um, you know, thankfully, and hopefully there's other teenagers and parents that can walk through that with them, you know, and, and say, you know, think through business. I mean, who wants to grow up knowing about business? But it is, if we have a hand here like that, one of the hands is business. One of the fingers in our hand is business. And um, I think some people are better at it and some people are worse at it. But, you know, um, it's uh, especially during COVID, the last, if you want to just pull it up to the, the COVID era, um, I couldn't believe um, how many um, products and little knickknacks and, and, and gimmicks were created to uh, monetize um, the pandemic. And I was against that. I felt like um, we have too much stuff already. Let's, um, do we have to make more stuff? And then on the other side of that coin, Damien, was so many new kids and young people making, building, literally building their own computers. Like my, my Samoa, my ex-husband, um, and band member's son, Zenichi, he built his own computer from scratch. Mm, that's amazing. And I'm, I'm finding so many young people like Gen Generation Z, as do you call that generation, Generation Z in Canada? Yeah, I think that's Generation Z, right? Like eight, It's like the 18-year-olds to 23 now, or 20, maybe it's longer than that, sorry. But yeah, the new one. Yeah, Generation Z, they led, they led, um, all of the so many of the um the um marches that we had the last three years it was all generation z leading all of that i thought it was it was mind-bending it was it was a beautiful thing to see yeah because you're right during the pandemic i don't so know if you had that we we did like it wasn't quite as pronounced as in america but there definitely were marches and and it was well like it was a time of great sort of like political understanding i think like a shift that was happening and then unfortunately we had recently the the convoy thing which was a completely different shift in the other way but it it does feel with like during the pandemic so much of our happiness was tied to buying something you know and it was okay to like uh medicate through shopping and all these sorts of things where like you're saying there's a lot of people that made a lot of money during the pandemic by monetizing people's pain the thing that people don't believe when i tell them for some reason they think that i'm um not being truthful or exaggerating when I say I've never bought anything from Amazon or used delivery services. I was very against that during the pandemic because I saw so many young people getting beat up when they were delivering packages on my block. It's not good. I don't like it. I don't, I mean, it's providing jobs for some, but it's only providing jobs for a very certain demographic of people. You get a lot of young kids who, who, are supporting their own families and just very overworked as well. Like no one really spoke about how overworked um, delivery people and house painters and drivers were in New York city. My, um, a friend of mine, Cole, that is, um, is in a band called night terror um, was painting a house up in um, upstate New York and he fell from a three story, um, building he fell when he was painting and it was my feeling that 
they should have had two or three other painters on that job. And because there were so few people available to work, everyone was um, penny pinching and taking shortcuts and just not really hiring the kind of people that needed to be hired. So I saw a lot of people really overworking and a lot of injuries happen the first couple of years. So that's why I made a decision not to use the delivery services or um, I don't buy things online. I don't use eBay. I don't use um, any of those um, sites at all. And, you know, uh, month after month during the pandemic, I would get a call with someone saying, hey, we can make T-shirts if you just send in a photo to, to this place. They'll make a T-shirt and a mug and a towel and you can make all this merchandise. And I said, um, I'd prefer not to work that way. I make my things in my apartment and many bands um came to life that way Damien I don't want to I don't want to paint a really negative picture maybe there's a band or an artist out there who got really inspired by you know making stuff online you know mm -hmm. so what I learned also during the this process is that like everyone has their own way of working and just because I don't use a computer and I don't make things that way doesn't mean that other people really enjoy doing that. But what I found was that if I, I try not to judge people for using all those things, but I felt really judged for not using them. I felt like I was getting shade for not doing all of that. I felt like I was getting a lot of side eye. Well, I think because it takes a lot of discipline not to do that stuff now. And I think people are insecure about the fact that they don't have that discipline. Like I know, eBay is the thing that I was addicted to. Like I had to give my wife my password so I'd stop buying records on there because I couldn't stop, you know, and I, I, I lack the willpower to turn it off. And I think that's the way it is with this stuff. It's so convenient that it takes effort to stop doing it. Yeah, I think it just depends on your socioeconomic frame of mind too, Damien, because a lot of people don't have a savings account or any credit, so they can't buy stuff online. They just yeah. can't. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you actually, is that, does that play into the reason that like a lot of your older stuff, like I was trying to find some of the films that you directed. Cause I read this interview with Tessa Hughes Freeland and she was talking about how some of your films were like the best stuff to come out of cinema transgression and, and Cornelia, the story of a burning bush and all these films that are like, uh -huh. impossible, they're impossible to find now. Like, does that play into the fact that you don't want this stuff reissued or is, have you ever thought about having this stuff reissued in some sort of way today? Yeah, I really do. Like Tessa, Tessa is uh, a really great artist. And um, a lot of people that were from the cinema of transgression, they, they kind of took off for a couple of decades because they were starting families and stuff. Mm. And then they started doing stuff again um, after their kids turned, you know, 18 and stuff but they wanted to make sure a few of the folks that i grew up with in cinema of transgression really wanted to make sure that their kids were okay so when they were hanging out at home with the kids growing the kids up they had more time i think to work on their older stuff like the stuff from the 80s and the last um few decades my feeling about working on my 80s stuff was um I'm going to reissue that and work on it um, when I feel like doing it and um, not when I have to. 
Yeah. And um, it takes a lot of um, time and uh, funds to reissue your stuff. And while I'm having, while I'm still writing new material and still doing new records, not to say that anyone from that scene isn't doing new work. It just takes, um, it's like, again, if, if you have five fingers on your hand, one of the fingers is reissuing your old material. And yeah. um, uh, I'm always talking to Tessa now and to friends now about, they're very supportive about like, hey, we, we have a way to, for you to reissue all of your work, like Richard Kern as well. So they're just kind of, everyone's kind of doing a different thing at a different time. I think my time to reissue might be maybe in the next five years. Well, it's also like you've never stopped creating and never stopped working and never stopped evolving as an artist. So I imagine like to look back feels, I don't know, maybe, maybe feels like taking a step back in a certain way. I don't know. I don't mean to put that on you if it's not that way. No, it's not. You're not putting it on me. I think it's, I think it's really, there's a kind of, um, it's good to do. It's self-respectful to love your old work. And I used to call it yesterbating when I look backwards, like um, yesterbating. Um, and the 80s for me was filled with a lot of trauma. I lost my best friend to AIDS. And um, so looking back on, on that work, we've had, we've had um, uh, times in the last 10 years where we paid homage to the people that died of AIDS in the 80s. One person specifically was Gordon Curti. That's K-U-R-T-T-I. We had a show for him that was curated by Carl George at Participant Gallery. And it was the 25th anniversary of his passing. And he was my first best friend in New York. So there, there's many different ways that I think we engage with our older work. And for us to have a show for Gordon to show all of his work that he made in the 80s was something that was really important to us. Um, there's a place called Visual AIDS in New York City that does that as well, that keeps the work of David Wojnarowicz and other important artists that died of AIDS um, alive for us all to see. So um, it's not a conscious choice really um, for me to not, um, reissue my work Damien I'd like to do that in the next 10 years and one of my one of my um one of my friends now called Orlando Estrada is helping me with that so my son called Christopher Cole is helping me with that so I've got um two artists that I really respect who are willing to sit down and do that with me so maybe I'll do that in the next 10 years um I guess going back to LA would you go to shows at the mask I did, yeah. Did you ever see performance art there? Because I've heard of stories about like Bob Biggs doing performance art pieces, like very sort of rudimentary performance art stuff. But was there any of that stuff going on that, you know, connected with you at all? Yeah. Yeah, I saw Johanna Wint. So she was a performance artist. And I remember seeing her with The Clash and Muddy Waters at the Santa Monica Civic. <laughs> and The Clash to have her used to have you know, similar to what Adam and Jawbreaker does now, they get a wide variety of performers and comics and all different kinds of extreme artists to open for them. And The Clash did that. They had Johanna Went, And so I saw that. I saw Diamond de Galas. At, um, I saw her a lot 
and to me that's um, vocal. Um, she's a vocal uh, genius, but um, I saw many different kinds of performance art. The screamers were very performance artish to me, Tomato Du Plenty. And then later on, I saw Ron Athey and Vaginal Cream Davis who were part of a, a different punk scene in the, in the 90s. Yeah, I find it I find it amazing like how well you're saying it earlier. There's just so much people did, taking this energy and taking it to different places in in these small clubs and stuff like that. And people that will wind up doing, you know, or influencing artists for for decades to come. Like all kind of grouping together. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. I feel so fortunate that I got to learn about all of that great music and art Damien. I feel really fortunate and I talk to my dad Larry Ball about that sometimes. And I say to him, how did I get so lucky to be born in 1961 and to get to grow up seeing these incredible works? And um, if ever I'm having a really rotten time or just feeling so down and out or blue, um, I always think about how fortunate I was to be able to see all that great work. And um, the records also that my dad, Larry Ball, exposed me to. He exposed me to... Lou Reed and to um, and to um, Leo Kotke and so many great um, uh, folk performers and folk vocalists. Um, so um, I and also he Larry Ball was working for Parliament Funkadelic and Bootsy Collins when I was in high school. So I got to learn about Bootsy and and George Clinton when I was in high school as well. Was that was that informative on voluptuous horror of Karen Black and like kind of like the costume element and the kind of show element to it? Like you have that right from the beginning. I was watching a video like one of your first early performances the other day, and it's like already it's sort of this level of show personship that like you know like Parliament Funkadelic kind of show. I wish I wish <laughs> I could have had it as together as as George Clinton had it together with his incredible. Um, keyboardists and, and his incredible female, the women in his band, the dancers, and just um, the way he held himself and the incredible musicianship and that he had. Frank Zappa as well um, yeah. did incredible recordings and performance. Um, I, I, I wish that I could have um, held it down the way they did, but I, I, I would say definitely that was a really positive influence and i still go and see parliament funkadelic to this day i still listen to parliament funkadelic every day still i i love that music so much still and i just found out recently about the parlettes um which was a, a female group that um george clinton had um had recorded and they their costumes were incredible the parlettes they were a female group were there any performers back then? Like, cause you obviously you're, you're one of the most, you know, and I mean this in a very complimentary way, but like took performance, extreme performance to, to the most extreme places. Were there any performers that you saw early on that you were like, that is someone taking it to a new place, like that were influential or informative on you like that? Sure. I loved, um, I loved performance um, that was from the 20s and 30s. I love. I loved a, a woman called Nazimova, who was um, did her own um, dance choreography and made her own costumes. 
Nazimova was important to me. I mean, um, I loved Josephine Baker, um, especially because the way she was able to dance and the way she approached solo performance so uh, vigorously and with so much strength and honesty and beauty. I mean, I basically was attracted to performances that I found very beautiful and kind of introduced a new paradigm of, of beauty that I hadn't seen before. And Karen Black to me was um, a beauty aesthetic more than anything, trying to create a beautiful world more than um, anything else. And I think that's why we've been able to, to hang around for so long because um, there's hopefully in this life, great moments of beauty and things that inspire us to keep us going you know, every week, every day, every month, every year. So hopefully that, that ends up in Karen Black. Um, it Hopefully those things of beauty are reflected in the band. And sometimes, um, lately especially, um, I've been writing songs. Um, Samoa is always saying to me, um, where, where's the ascension? Where's the, where's the good parts? And I said, it's coming. It'll be after the solo. It'll be in the last verse and um, it's coming. It's just not here yet. And um, so that's been kind of humorous, but sometimes dark times require a dark voice and there's been some dark days here. I can, let me just say to you, Damien, thank you so much for letting me speak with you. It's not often I get to talk to other human beings right now. It's not often we get to, engage with one another i'd love to hear about um what fucked up what your band is doing more i'd love to hear about what you're doing this is really fun for me too so i'm around I, all I the time and i'm a, babbling. no please no not at all I, I didn't mean to cut you off there but i was going to say anytime you want to call i'm a phone person i love chatting on the phone so if you're ever lonely <laughs> i like my i don't my... have a, have a phone. I don't, I'm not struggling with loneliness, but I do think that all of us need to practice how to talk to one another. That's just something we all need to practice. Yeah. Hello. Yeah. Hello. Oh, look at that kitty. Hello, RG. Um, are you ready? Can we, should I ask you another question? Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Okay. I want, oh, hello. Um, you know, you bring up like the, the idea that this is the beauty and why art's necessary right now. And it's, it's fascinating because some of the most extreme mainstream art I've ever seen is Japanese deathmatch wrestling, where it's wrestlers that go in and they're, they're using weapons. It's still wrestling. So it's still a performance, but they're, they're using weapons on each other. There's a lot of blood. There's a lot of, uh, explosions, barbed wire, sometimes piranhas even used and talking to the wrestlers and the fans the the motivation is to get to inspire people to go on with their lives you know and they're going out there and bleeding and just talking to the fans like they talk about how going and see these wrestlers put their lives on the line and and bleed like that and and just give themselves for them gives them motivation to kind of get through the next week of work and it's just amazing how these things that scare some people um wind up becoming beautiful and inspirational for other people yeah, I haven't really seen any of that kind of stuff. I mean, there were performance artists like Ron Athey 
who did a lot of blood work in the 90s, and, and Ron Athey was practically imprisoned for um, using blood in his work because there was such a fear of, of um, AIDS mm. and mm. blood. And so in this country, in the 90s during and the 80s during the AIDS epidemic, people were being put in prison for using uh, and having blood in their performance work, or they were losing their grants, they were losing their art credibility, um, and losing all of their funding, um, um, because they were using blood in their work. And Ron Athey is someone, I think, hopefully some some of you out there who are listening to Damien's show, I really recommend you um, researching uh, Ron Athey's work. Um, I do think that it's interesting that Japanese death um, uh, wrestling exists. I don't use that kind of extreme uh, blood and violence in my performance work because I don't know how to do it. And I don't um, like touching weapons or guns or knives because I don't know how to use those materials and I, I wouldn't want to hurt myself or anyone else. So I don't go near any of those things. Um, and um, traditionally in Care, the voluptuous horror of Karen Black, we make, um, uh, you know, cardboard props. And um, I, I did a photo shoot with my friend Jean Tour. that's G-E-A-N-T-O-I-R, a wonderful photographer who was doing something with swords that was so beautiful. He wanted to take a picture of me flying above a sword. And I said, Jean, I can't hold this sword because it's too dangerous of a weapon and for me to hold. And he just assured me that he was going to make sure that I didn't hurt myself and that he was going to Photoshop me flying above it. And it, so it had a very phantasmagorical kind of manga looking extreme wonderful uh vibe to it but that's been interesting with me experimenting with um with um uh, collaborating with other people um you know because instead of me refusing to do the picture Jean and I talked about it we talked it through to make sure what his motives were like what's your motive Jean and um uh I really loved what he was doing and I, and I, um, you know, look him up. He's a wonderful photographer. He's on Insta and, um, we just shot something for on off the rails magazine from Manchester, which is a punk magazine that has wonderful imagery. I really suggest all of you out there looking at that magazine and, and submitting your band stuff to them. I think They're I've actually, cool. I, picked, I think I picked Manchester. up an issue. I think I picked up an issue when we were on tour one time, actually. I'm pretty sure I know that. I've... Yeah, I like them. We just did that um, a couple of days ago. And actually tonight I'm taking pictures with my band members. So I have to go soon because they have, we, have, we all have um, like three or four jobs right now. So the women that I'm working with tonight, they just got off work and I'm going to go over there with some makeup and um, my wigs and we're going to take pictures. So. Um, Lately, um, Damien, you've got me at a time when it was a bit slower during um, the past three years of COVID, and I really had to invent my own kind of system for doing live performances, and we would do performances on the beach at Coney Island, right on the beach, 
and um, we built our own sound for those shows. And, um, you know, some of the clubs were open, like um, in New York City, Jesse Malin um, has a club called Bowery Electric. And Bowery Electric, we did a wonderful Halloween presentation at. But a lot of a lot of the shows that were happening had to be closed down because one person would get one person who worked in the club would come up positive for COVID. And then again and again and again, the last three years in New York, everything just got shut down, you know? Yeah. So um, I feel like there's a little bit of an opening right now um, and we'll see what happens after that. I'm not I'm just hoping the best. I think it's kind of the golden age for availableism right now. Like you were like your, your philosophy that you brought in, like this is the age where you have to look around what you have at your disposal to create art, to make performances happen now, because the, the, the convenience of the system that was in place prior to the pandemic, you know, is obviously fallen apart. So now it's like, how do you get what you do out to people? Well, um, that's, that's something that um, we can all create our own systems with, you know, um, I think each artist is capable of, um, of inventing their own systems. And um, for some people, it takes them having to leave the house and running into somebody at, you know, the deli or, or people are still using methods like putting ads in uh, on on social media for I need to work with a new singer I need a bass player some people are shyer right now and need to meet people other ways so it really depends on what kind of personality you are like not everyone has the same personality to to put their band together there's all different sorts of ways for people to get on tour and for people to put together bands and I'm just trying to really always understand that my way is not the only way. My way is just one way to do it. And there's a lot of other ways to do it. So um, um, I will not be writing a book on all those other ways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although I, I would share with how to book your band uh, 2022. That was a good book that came out in the nineties, like how to book your band and um, which listed all of the places you could play across oh, the country. Book your own fucking life. That book, like the max rock and roll put out. Yeah. In, yes, yeah. absolutely. The Bible. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. I mean, yeah. I don't know if that goes for like Europe and um, South America and for Canada, but yeah, like I know, I know bands that booked European tours with that book, just like, going through sections, writing to people. And like, it's amazing how, you know, like that's, that's what I love about hearing you talk about availableism is just how it's taking the DIY principle kind of the next stage and like saying like, you know, it's not just DIY as uh, a necessity, it's DIY as a philosophy. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and you have kids now, right? Your mm -hmm. kids are in, and don't speak about this if you don't want to. Oh, I'm, I talk about out. I talk about them. It's okay. They hate it, but I talk about them. Um, you know, what are, what are the teens and the people in their early 20s? They're always asking me how you book shows and stuff. And I think I can share my methodology with them. But everybody has their, uh, even the young folks, the young folks, not even the young folks, that sounds patronizing, but young folks are coming up with their own ways that are unlike, unlike my ways. You know, it's not, it's never my way, the highway. 
that does not work. Um, that's also known as ageism. And um, there, that still exists. And um, we have to pay attention to that all the time. Um, when I was teaching at the universities, I, I, I really, I really um, learned a lot. And I, oh my goodness, those universities seemed so difficult for all of the young folks today. Um, universities in 2022, um, as wonderful as, as, they, as, as an experience as it is for some people, I do love the idea of people um, starting their own universities and starting their own schools that don't cost money. And maybe you have that in Canada. Maybe you have university or schools that don't cost um, money that gives you a nervous breakdown later. Yeah, no, we're, we're unfortunately halfway between Europe and America. So we have to pay for our universities here. We don't have the European experience, sadly. Um, and it does bring massive debt along with that education and enrichment. Uh, what the, I was going to say, uh, Kembra, if you have to go, we can continue this later on. I don't want to keep you and stuff. And I believe me, I have so many more things to talk to you about. The last thing I want to do is bog you, you down before I have to go to work. You want to talk tomorrow night? Kembra, thank you so much for uh, coming back on. I, I promise you the, the questions will not go on forever. <laughs> Thanks, Damien. It's nice to be here to speak with you all the way from New New York City. Hello. Well, I was just, I was wondering when you get to New York, uh, what was your first entryway to kind of the performing arts? Uh, like, I guess the, the, the sort of like live performance world and, and, you know, performance artist kind of world there. Well, um, when I was in Los Angeles, I was exposed, as we were speaking about before, to some incredible performances and incredible clubs. I remember seeing um, Diamanda Galas at a place called La Hasa on Sunset Boulevard. And I would just always gravitate towards the strangest places in Los Angeles. So when I got to New York, um, I sort of um, mostly would gravitate towards the the music scene. And I was living in an apartment when I first came to New York that my mom helped me organize, which was on the Upper West Side. And it was um, an actor's house um, that had actually made a film with Karen Black called Burnt Offerings. And so I was staying in this really strangely um, horror-like Baroque brownstone apartment on the Upper West Side. There were no young kids, no punk kids on the Upper West Side, but I was near a club called La Hasa, um, called, um, what was it called? Oh gosh, now I, I'm having a, I'm having a, oh, it was called Haraz. Okay. And that Haraz was a club that was near Lincoln Center. And um, it, you know, I saw um, Tuxedo Moon and I saw, um, so many interesting um, performative bands at um, Haraz. Um, um, and I would go generally to most of the um, music clubs like CBGBs and, and um, places like that, all those, those, um, those New York City um, uh, music venues. There was a, a place called Tier Three that was really great on Twenty Third Street, and um, 
I would also go to a lot of, um, of performances that happened in people's lofts. There was um, a woman called Arlene Schloss that um, had a loft downtown and she would always have really strange uh, conceptual performance nights, you know? So it wasn't always about music, the things that I saw, but um, mostly I would go to, to see bands though, Damien. So did you have any um, exposure to kind of like, uh, you know, like a band like the Mad, like any of the bands that were kind of doing like some really weird performance of stuff? Like that was um, Screaming Mad George's band where he would like perform. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I don't mean to interrupt you. I just no, got go on, please. Oh, me too. I got excited hearing you say Screaming Mad George. Yeah, I saw I saw the Mad. Yeah, def- I saw the Mad at CBGB's and Screaming Mad George was uh, 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 really doing special work you know at that time uh haunted garage that was an la band um but um the cramps i saw a lot too the cramps who who didn't do things that like screaming mad george did but um the cramps were um were great musically yeah like i'm fascinated by all those bands like you're saying that are doing really different things but all kind of taking performance to kind of a new place and the Pyramid Club was doing extreme performances as well. And they always had go-go people dancing on the bar. And Samoa, my husband, uh, my husband-to-be, was someone that I saw at the Pyramid Club on the Lower East Side. Um, and he would um, often do performances with someone called Tanya Ransom, who's now deceased. Um, Tanya Ransom, Frederick, um, and um, Ethel Eichelberger was someone who was doing incredible work at the Pyramid Club. And um, Jack Smith, I saw, I would go to film places as well. There was a place called the Millennium Film Archives. And that was the place that I met um, George Kuchar in the early days. And George Kuchar was part of the Kuchar brothers, Mike and George Kuchar. And that was another aspect of of, uh, things that I did. Um, I went to film places. Um, like um, the anthology film archives where Jonas Mikas worked. And I ended up working at a place called Rafik, where a lot of people that made underground films worked. So that was another aspect of going to see things live was going to see these strange films. And I also ended up, um, the, after the first year I was in New York, I went to, um, I dropped out of School of Visual Arts and I went to Europe. And I got to see a lot of interesting performance type works. Um, in Vienna, Austria, I got exposed to the Vienna Action Group. And um, I got to see strange performances in Berlin. So um, I, I guess I did have a, a pretty um, intense education around performance. Samoa comes from Hiroshima, Japan. And he turned me on to going to see Buto dance. So we would go see Buto dance as well. Um, uh, Japanese dance performance. That was also very inspirational to me. It's, it's amazing kind of like how, how much energy there is in, in that city, like at all times, I guess, but specifically that era, like just feels like whether it's punk or, or hip hop or hardcore or, or, you know, art or film, like it just feels like, so much of what would be exported as, you know, and mass marketed in a lot of ways as alternative culture is really yeah. kind of like germinating from there. 
Well, I mean, it was existing in Los Angeles as well. People were making um, films and doing performances in Los Angeles as well. And my friend just came from um, uh, Copenhagen. Uh, he just came from Europe. He's here now. And we walked around yesterday and I, uh, we, we must have done 50 things in one day. And I said to him, is it like this in Europe? Is your day like this in Europe? Because just the way we operate and the amount of things there is to do in New York, it's still like that, Damien. Mm -hmm. You can, if you have a desire to um, peer into um, what's going on, um, that's not just happening on the internet and you want to peer into um, things that people are doing without too much support and finance, it's still happening a lot in New, in New York. I mean, there's a lot of new bands that are here right now, like um, um, Come Girl 8 is fantastic. Girl Dick is fantastic. And a lot of the Generation Z people are doing really wonderful musical and visual types of performance. I was teaching music and art at Columbia for a couple of years before the pandemic. And all those people that were in their you know, late teens, early 20s, really had a strong desire to do, um, you know, performance work that wasn't going to land them on um, uh, Netflix. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, uh, well, like you're saying, there is a continuation. There's always going to be people that are disenfranchised with mainstream culture and want to take things to a different place. Or, or create a new place, you know, just mm -hmm. create another place, make create another space for things to exist that doesn't exactly have to do with, um, uh, I guess you could call it mainstream acceptance or something. Um, I mean, um, main the mainstream follows the underground, and I hate to use the term underground, but let's just say the mainstream usually listens to secrets more than we're not listening to their secrets to make up for new work. They're stars. That's an amazing way of putting it. Yeah, I'm trying to find a way to put that, but I can't really. But yeah, it's, I'm not I'm not um I'm not getting inspired by what I'm seeing in pop culture. I think it's the other way around. Mm -hmm. Um I guess like how much of a kind of like tradition is the stuff that you're kind of the senior kind of entering and ultimately a key part of in, in terms of the performance art stuff to like the theater of the ridiculous scene that would happen like a few years earlier in New York. Like, was there any sort of tradition or is something that's happening that, you know, that you're a part of is a complete break of things that from things that came before. Well, gosh, um, the theater of the ridiculous and those people that came um, before us, it was, you know, all of those people sacrificed their lives to create space for us. So yes, a hundred percent. My peers and and we had the the um, the um, knowledge and and reverence for what had happened before us. Like you know, I moved to New York and I I moved to a place that was a couple of ways, a couple of blocks away from Jack Smith who lived on First Avenue. And thankfully I was able to meet Jack Smith and I got to work with him um, um, doing his last film with him. I made his very last film with him. And I don't know if you're aware of um, Jack Smith, but I encourage you to 
<clears throat> learn about him and he's someone that's so inspiring Damien he was so political and his his films and and what he he how he shot his films and what his films looked like inspired a huge population of um, the performance world uh, right now uh, and he after he passed away he died of AIDS um he, he had never really um, made a penny when he lived. And after he died, he just was completely uh, absconded and absorbed into um, the gallery world. And, you know, someone's made a complete um, fortune off of his work. Films came, films came out about him, documentaries. He had uh, exhibits in very hoity-toity galleries like Barbara Gladstone. And he, he was really monetized and really... Um, exploited after his death and it's a shame that he didn't get any of those resources he never had any resources to make the things that he did and um, he was known for saying things like they sucked the travel out of me meaning people would take his films and go and show them in Europe and um, you know uh, make money off of, off of the films that Jack Smith had made without actually taking Jack Smith with them um, so he's someone I really recommend to people to, that, to find out about if, if, you, if you have a desire to. He's really, he speaks about capitalism in, in a way that's very understandable and um, what he wishes to replace capitalism with actually, like the, the new systems that he wants to um, employ uh, really make a lot of sense. He, he talked about redecorating the city and making it a place that was easier to um, live inside of and you know make uh, the city more beautiful with public art and he had such fantastic ideas he thought that um, bus stops should have plastic palm trees hanging over them with musical soundtracks um, along with with them which is you know essentially he was in an exaggerated way just sort of saying we should make the city comfortable and safe for the elderly, for children, and for people that didn't have, and beautiful for people that didn't have um, the money to make their own lives beautiful. Mm. Uh, yeah, my, my knowledge of him comes from just interviews with you and kind of how much uh, reverence you spoke about him in the past and past interviews. And that's where, you know, I kind of went and sort of read up on him from was just from, once again, hearing you talk about him. And, and that's... yeah. There's wonderful, there's a film. Did you see the documentary about him? Visions of Atlantis. Visions of Atlantis. It's, you can find it on the internet. It's a great film and a great book as well. It's a great book to read to kids, you know? Oh, definitely. Um, I definitely will order that now and read that to my kids or find it from the bookstore. Yeah, great film too, Damien. I think you might really like that movie. Um, another thing I heard in an interview, actually, I think it was with Lydia Lunch, is that you didn't really have any involvement with the no wave stuff that was going on. And that I think you even said in the interview that you found it a little bit intimidating at the time. And that's something that's been echoed by a lot of people that have come on the show. That, that was the no wave thing was almost it's a thing unto itself. Well, um, intimidating, I would say everything was intimidating to me because I was so young. I was 17, 18. And yeah. I really hadn't come into my own yet. I needed to find my own vision and vocabulary as an artist before I could really, I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't a peer of, of those no wave artists. And um, they always were, especially Lydia was so articulate about saying, when you come out and do your artwork or do your music, come out, you know, come out hot and hard. And 
Miss Davis, Vaginal Cream Davis used to say that um, um, new artists should come out and knock the older artists off their pedestals. Your work should come out that hot and hard. And, you know, I never had a desire to knock anyone off their pedestal, but I wanted to do work that would impress and inspire. Like I wasn't for Lydia, you know, I wanted Lydia to be able to say, wow, that's really different. You know, I did, I didn't come out just like impersonating Lydia, which a lot of people did, you know, a lot of people just sort of like clone themselves after um, that, that generation of people. And, and that no wave music was all about making sure that, you know, there does exist other ways for you to do things and you better go find it. And, and Lydia would always, always present that to other artists. And um, that was intimidating to me. And it was inspiring more than intimidating, because it really made me want to find my own vocabulary of images and not, you know, do something that was completely contrary to what the what those people were doing. You know, I wasn't going to make a band that was just like another um, uh, uh, Xerox of of Teenage Jesus, you know. And I, I thought that would be an insult to what Teenage Jesus were, were doing. Mm-hmm. And the amazing thing about getting to know Lydia in the later years and getting to be friendly with her is that she's such a nurturing wonderful um um uh, great um uh help uh let's see what's the right word for it uh mentor to other artists and to other artists her same age or older or younger she's always so encouraging and making sure that you know you're working as hard as you can and how can you feel as well as you can to do that work um which is um I was inspired by her book, The Need to Feed. I don't think I'd ever even eaten dinner before I read Lydia's book, Need to Feed. And she was always such an early proponent of making sure um, that um, we were nourishing ourselves, you know, which wasn't really like a punk, <laughs> a punk ethic, you know, like talking about like making sure your self-care was on point. And Lydia, um, again, being like completely ahead of her time, um, because that's so in fashion now, um, you know, making sure that you, you can't exist as an artist and do intense things if you're um, starving to death, underfed and half dead. Yeah, no, that's very true. Yeah, and absolutely. And it, and it has become much more of a tenant of of punk music and like food not bombs and the idea of providing food healthy food for people that don't have access yeah. to it like that comes much later bands um, that like jawbreaker my brother's band and a lot of bands from oakland and stuff in mm-hmm. san francisco and food not bombs that was that was such a that is because it still exists and fugazi the people from dc um if if anything it, it changed the world to me it changed the world completely you know cheaper for the youth, it really changed the world. And for even in, in hip hop and that kind of um, rap music and stuff, it's still, you know, there's an, there's um, more integration now, although it's still separate, but there's more integration now with um, punk music and the existence of, um, uh, of, of that kind of punk music just because of um how the um internet has blown up and 
allowed people to um, share their work with one another more easily. Because before, in the early days, as you know, Damien, we just had little fanzines and stuff. And there's publications that we often read in, to get our, our you know, invaluable information before the before the 90s came and before the internet blew up. But mm -hmm. I think now we all have opportunities to kind of know one another a little bit more like Japanese, the Japanese noise scene in, in Japan or friends with, you know, uh, people with people doing music in, in Washington state and, yeah. the, you know, the music scene in India are friends with like heavy metal people in, in Mexico. And if, if there's anything positive to say about the internet, it's that, you know, we do have access to one another a little bit more readily if we choose to do our deep dive and really seek out, um, not fan out, but seek out other artists. And that's something that's an important ethic in punk is that, you know, punk was about not fanning out and not being, um, it, was, it, was, it was about encouraging you to, despite your ability to still be um, exist to still find your place in the music or art or um, writing world. It was that you you have you can exist. You have a right to exist despite your education, despite where you're, you're coming from. You know. Yeah. No. It's, it's, that, no sorry. Go ahead. That makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. It's one of the few places that you're told as a young person that you're, you know, what you're doing is valid and important. You know, it definitely is a place where, like you're saying, it's, it's anyone can do it and everyone should do it. Like you're not, it, it's kind of looked down upon to not be participating. Right. And, and, and therefore, you know, fanning out um, on people. So I'm just saying that with I'm trying to say that with some clarity, because, you know, if, if, since we do have, um, the ability to connect with others instead of us just observing, you know, there's a chance to actually reach out to those artists and connect and really uh, participate and share what you're doing with them. It's like, um, I always felt that it was very important. If I really loved someone's artwork, I, I needed to make sure that I met them and did something with them artistically before they left this earth, you know, and, mm. and not just fan out on them, not just buy their shit, but actually, you know, uh, if, if there's someone that was so big that they didn't have time to interact with me, you know, what can I do to help with, with your work? You know, um, what can I do as a younger artist to help with your work? Do you, you know, what can I do to um, not just fan out, you know, because that that sort of um, mentality, I think, is very elitist. It's separatist. It's unhealthy, and it um, is culturally unacceptable to me. It's just about that's just about monetization and separateness. Well, actually, I really wanted to talk to you also about some of the people that you have collaborated with over the years because it is such a an incredibly diverse range of artists and different types of people. Like uh, I was watching a video that purported to be from 1987, but that wouldn't make sense with voluptuous horror of Karen Black not forming till later, but it's Joe Coleman doing a carnival Barker intro to uh, a very early performance of the band. And then in between there are uh, sort of uh, performance art 
pieces, phone sex ads in between each uh-huh. of them. Um, was was that first of all? Is that from eighty seven or is it? It must be later, right? No, it's from eighty seven, and I think um, you were probably seeing some of the first iterations of Voluptuous Order of Care Black, and Joe Coleman was always really supportive of of my artwork. Um, I mean, uh, which was, which didn't happen that often, you know? Um, and just as far as like sexism is concerned in our culture, um, it was really nice to have um, a guy um, that was a really strong artist, someone I respected a lot, really give me a lot of affirmations that wasn't about just like, I'm getting pussy or something. I hate to say that so um, crassly if, if anyone is under age or anything but i mean i really felt respected as a as a as a strong artist not just as as, as as an object and joe coleman was someone that really supported me with um my artwork back in the 80s i was still in my 20s and literally nobody would even give me the time of day back then except a really small group of people that i dealt with because i was too young i was really young and um I, I'm a small person and uh, my gender played a lot into it. You know, I was just like never taken seriously. And I was doing, in my mind, some pretty serious sh- shit. So Joe Coleman, um, I, I can't really, re- I don't really remember how Joe and I met. We've been friends all of our lives. And he just had an exhibit at the Outsider Art Fair, Damien, which is a great kind of museum show that happens every year in New York now with outsider artists. Um, and um, Joe, um, yeah, is a, a very family, good friend of mine to this day. And um, I just, you know, he really changed my life, giving me that kind of boost and and love and support when literally no one else would, you know. Absolutely. That's amazing. Was he still playing with the steel tips? By the time you got to New York, he was not. He had just um, he had just published uh, uh, that that comic, large comic graphic novel of his, uh, uh, Pro- Professor Wombat, I think oh, it is. Okay, yeah, Wolfbait Wombat. That <laughs> that one. I could be saying that incorrectly just because I've such shit for brains today. I, but I think he, I know what you're talking about, though. Yeah, he had just published that. He was living on the Lower East Side. It was um, he was still with his first wife when I met him, and um, you know I've known him through um, all of his relationships with these incredible women that he's had. He was with Big Diane, and he is now with an incredible woman called Whitney Ward, and um, he's just had the most incredible life um, of a life of, of being a painter and an artist and. He's doing some performances sometimes still, very rarely. But no, I did not get to see Steel Tips. And um, I've seen his Steel Tip records at his house. He's got like a museum uh, uh, kind of uh, apartment uh, house now. He's living upstate New York and his house is really like a museum. Um, and I live so so opposite. I live to the, in a complete opposite fashion. I'm not a collector I don't have, I've got like three books. I don't have any pictures on the wall. I live almost monastically. I, I'm, I don't buy things um, on the internet. 
I don't collect or buy things really. I don't know why. Um, but I mean, I have the art and the gifts that my collaborators and friends have given me, of course, over the years, but I don't put them out um, in my studio because I work sort of like monastic. I work sort of one project at a time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess it's just two different ways of, of living, right? Like the, the nesting with everything you could possibly have surrounding you as, as protection uh -huh. versus uh, living yeah. with a, a clear head. I mean, I, I think you can, for some people having a lot of objects and things around you, that just, that creates a clear head. There's no judgment about that at all. Um, where from me, it's just a different way of living. Well, and I, and I say this as a person surrounded by every object I could right now. So as you saw, so, you know, no, um, it's, beautiful. it's beautiful. I love going to people's studios and seeing their collection of books. And I love exchanging book lists with people, like give me a list of your favorite five books, the books that you've kept in your life, all of your life, what books are important to you. I mean, those things are great to share with one another. Well, I owe you that list and a list of Japanese deathmatch wrestling uh, matches to watch, too. So I'm going to send you two lists when we're done this thing. Um, yeah, it sounds like you have quite an archive, and it looked like it as well. You've got almost like a museum worth of things in your home, Damien. That's going to be fun for How many kids do you have? Three. Three? Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It's a zoo. How old are they? How old uh, are they? Six, nine, and 12. That's brilliant. That's it, so brilliant. They must really appreciate. Do they, do, are they allowed to go through your records and books? Absolutely. They have no interest in doing so, but I have tried to encourage it as much as, much as possible just because, uh, you know, I grew up kind of with my dad's records and books around and, and they brought me great joy. And, and I know you're kind of the same way with the Parliament Funkadelic oh, Records. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really owe my dad, Larry Ball, like I owe him my my life because I I absconded with half of his records when I went to New York. And I always feel terrible about that because he had such an incredible record collection. But I was kind of angry with my parents when I left Los Angeles. I was going through a phase where I just didn't get along with. I think some a lot of kids go through this kind of brief phase where you just can't stand your parents and thankfully that didn't last too long with me um but i really disconnected um with them for a minute and thankfully um all of those issues were kind of ironed out a couple of years after i left home because they've seen every one of my performance pieces that i've ever done really you know they came to all those places that no one would go to see my <laughs> my work you know it was my parents sitting in the front rows seeing some pretty gnarly stuff, you know, like um, the, me standing on my head and cracking eggs on my vagina. They were in the front row for that. <laughs> and, you know, I remember my mom picking me up at the Santa Monica airport once asking me um, to please explain why I, I uh, sewed my vagina shut. And, um, you know, I, I really, I thought that for parents to really, my parents really wanted to understand my work and they were really can you imagine have seeing a tiny person like me you know all of a sudden coming out hot and hard with all this insane imagery and my parents really strove to understand what i was doing and uh, i appreciate them forever for that you know not even my peers 
really um, understood or wanted to understand what I was doing. They just would scratch their heads. But my parents always, you know, had a lot of questions for me and wanted to know why I was naked in my work, why I felt the need to wear body paint and wigs and blacken my teeth out. They always um, asked me a lot of questions, and that was very helpful for me. That, that's very helpful. That's like true unconditional love that you hope you have for your kids, where you can support them and just be proud of them because you know that they're doing something that they they believe in. Well, my mother and father always told me that I was very creative. Same with Adam as well and Abby. Our, our parents really um, wanted us to dig deep in into our interests. And, um, you know, um, Adam's been playing with um, Jawbreakers since they were in high school. Mm. And it was my mother that strove to get Adam into um, Crossroads um, school Um because I, I think I had had such a terrible time in the larger public schools. Um, my mom got Adam into a school that was um, a little bit more geared toward um, um, different ways of thinking and different ways of learning. And that was an incredible school called Crossroads. And my brother played baseball as well as my family is actually like uh, very sporty and my grandparents were professional baseball players. Oh, wow. My grand, my grandmother was a softball player. My grandfather was a, a professional baseball player and Adam Fowler, the drummer of Jawbreaker, was playing um, a lot of baseball in, in high school. And that's one of the ways that he was accepted into crossroads was for his um, athletic ability. So he lucked out. He got to go to a school that was, a little bit more conducive to, um, I, I, I think, um, I, um, a better learning and loving, loving to, to actually um, educate um, young people rather than the public schools, which were more perfunctory and just cared about like a body the seats rather than what they were actually learning. I'm so sorry about this, uh, but this is incredible. And, and thank you again. Goodbye, um, people in Damien's um, show business world of uh, podcast. Thank you, Kembra, for coming on the show. And there's literally pages of questions that I have yet to ask her. So I hope they both come back on, her and Adam, and we can you know do an episode with the the two siblings or, or she comes back on her own as well for a part two, whatever. There's a lot more to talk about with Kembra. And once again, check out Voluptuous Horror of Karen Black. If they happen to be playing anywhere near you, They're, they do play sporadically still and, and put on incredible shows as well. Still a lot of, a lot of folks put on performance. Uh, you can find Kembra on social media as well and, and, you know, follow and, and check out some of the stuff she's doing because still creating incredible art. And that is that. All right. Coming up on the next episode of Turned Out a Punk. From the band Propagandi and a bunch of other cool stuff we talk about prior to that as well. Sue Lynn Hago will be on the show. And the final member of Propagandi. Now all the members of Propagandi have been on Turned Out a Punk. And... Well, we I kind of say the blessed for last because this is a, a a great conversation with a unbelievable guitarist, and you will hear it all next week or next episode on the show. 
That's it for today. Remember, as always, Black Lives Matter. The lives of Indigenous peoples matter. We need to protect trans kids and help trans people protect themselves and stop hate and violence towards people of different beliefs and faiths. And Because, you know, at the end of the day, we're not talking about politics. This is just basic human rights stuff. People deserve to be free and deserve to live without fear of oppression and, and hate. So if there's organizations that are doing good work around you, get involved and, and lend your voice, you know, and, and try and affect some change in this world because it feels better when you're, you know, doing something to, to improve this world around you. I don't know. I'm, it's a very late night, so I'm not as articulate as I should be on this topic, but yeah, just go out and get involved. Um, Speaking about getting involved, punk is meant to be a participatory culture. So get involved, start a band, start a fanzine, do whatever. Create your own culture. Anyone can do this stuff. And it doesn't have to be something huge or, you know, could be drawing a picture, making a podcast, whatever. Just, you know, it'll help your mental health to create something as well. You don't have to show it to anybody either. You just do it for yourself. Speaking about doing something for yourself, try meditating. I didn't believe in it, and now I try it, and it works. You know, I really do get something out of it, and maybe you will too. And it never hurts to try. It takes a few times, though, I found. But, you know, I didn't believe in it, and now now I do. So maybe it'll do the same thing for you. Uh, speaking about doing something for other people, maybe sign your organ donor card. Because by the time they look for those organs, you don't need them anymore. You know, it's literally like dead weight at that point. So why not just get out of your body and, and help someone live a much longer, ha- healthier, happy life, I guess? I've seen it happen. Uh, I'm not talking about this out of my ass. I've, I've definitely seen transplants happen and people's lives change, like completely change. So, yeah, sign your organ donor cards if you can. Um, uh, and I think that's it. I think that's all I got to say. Uh, thank you for listening. Stay safe. I'll see you next episode. Bye.